Genesis 15, Jesus, again, we come together to learn and to have our minds reshaped and renewed. We come to have misconceptions about you corrected. We come to have your spirit hover upon the water of the word and to cleanse us and to change us. And so we ask that, Lord, tonight, Genesis 15 would do those things, that our minds would be being shaped by this story, the story of Abram, who becomes Abraham, the father of many nations, a man who believed, hoped against hope, even when his body was as good as dead, that your promises would come true. And so we ask even tonight, that we would have the same kind of faith as Abram, that we would know that we're pilgrims in this world, that our hope lies in a city whose builder and maker is you. So even tonight, Lord, for those that have come in here empty, worried, tempted, failing, miserable, I pray that Genesis 15 would cause each of us to lift our eyes back up to where they belong. And that even if we don't know what to do, our eyes would remain fixed on you. So speak. May we listen. We ask this in your name. Amen. All right. So if you're here Sunday, you know that Genesis 15 is kind of an aha moment. It's a quantum leap forward in our understanding of God's character and what God wants from us. It's a phenomenal, phenomenal chapter. And the whole chapter begins with a surprise visit. Do you guys like surprise visits? When your mother-in-law just happens to drop by? Your son-in-law just happens to drop by. The house is a wreck, whatever. Well, God does this to Abram. So let's jump in. Verse one. Now, after these things, remember chapter 14, the war, the kings, five against four, they defeat everybody. They grab Lot, take everything away. Abram grabs his 318 men, couple of buddies, their men, they go up, they rescue Lot, they get everything back, they come back, they meet the two kings, the king of Sodom, the king of Salem, Melchizedek. Uh, Abram receives from Melchizedek bread and wine and refuses all the goods of Sodom, okay? So after these things, it's tying us together. The context of this chapter is important. So after these things... The word of Yahweh came to Abram in a vision. That's very important as well. We'll see in chapter 18 that it's a very different scenario there. It's, it's one that perplexes scholars. Like what happened? Who is actually there in chapter 18? This, though, is telling us it's a vision. So after these things, context, the word of Yahweh came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield, 
your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, a very rare term for God in the Pentateuch. O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, behold, you have given me no offspring and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of Yahweh came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed Yahweh and he counted it to him as righteousness. Interesting. So verse one, after all these kind of events take place, God shows up. And it says, if in verse one, it's God saying, hey, buddy, let's walk, let's talk, let's hang out. Because isn't that what friends do? I sometimes need to be reminded that's what friends do. So I don't know what it was, four or five years ago. It was a Wednesday night, nine o'clock. We had just packed up. My oldest daughter, Carissa, came up to me and she said, Dad, can I stay the night at my friend's house? Who, of course, is standing right there. Always makes it really awkward. You're like, all right. You know how to leverage people. So it's right there. And I said, no. And she said, why not? And I said, because I said so. Right? It's a good answer. I didn't say that. I said, because tomorrow morning at eight o'clock, you have a horse lesson and you're going to have to be back at eight o'clock to do your horse lesson. So it's nine o'clock right now. It makes no sense. You won't be able to do anything. And she just looked at me and she said, so I'll be with her. That's all that matters. And it like, oh my goodness. I said, that's brilliant. But no, you still can't go. <laughs> Doesn't change my mind. But that's what friends are. It's not a bucket list, it's not efficiency. Friendships are, hey, we're with each other. And it doesn't matter so much what we're doing, it's we're together having a great time. I sometimes need to be reminded that that's what friendships are all about. And that's what God is doing right here. He's coming, showing up to Abram, who is his friend, and saying, let's hang. It's almost, to me, reflecting back on what would happen in the garden when God would come to Adam and Eve in the cool of the evening as their God and as their friends and walk and talk with them. It's why I think James in James chapter two, verse 23, talking all about saving faith says this, and Abram was called the friend of God. I think if you wanna know what saving faith is, it's you like to be with Jesus. Ultimately, what's going to happen in my heart is I'm going to be want, want to be with Jesus, right? Because that's where I'm headed. When you get to heaven, you will not avoid Jesus. If you don't like him here, you're not going to want to be there. So ultimately, saving faith will look like, yeah, there's a lot of other stuff. But one of the things will be, I want to hang with Jesus. I want to hang with Jesus. I think Jesus is looking for friends, not because he's lonely, but because he is lovely and he wants to share what he knows and who he is with all of us. 
And Abram right here is getting let into that. I think it's why you see in Revelation 3.20, it says this, I stand at the door of men's heart and I knock. If anyone answers to me, I'll come in and I'll sup with him. We've lost the meaning of supper. Supping back in, <laughs> that doesn't sound right. It sounds like stand-up paddleboarding. Eating meals together 2,000 years ago was this. It was you shared stuff. You would eat the same bread. You would dip in the same dip. You would double dip. So you're literally sharing everything. And it was a way of saying, we're one. So Jesus says, I stand at the door of men's heart and I knock saying, I wanna be one with you. I wanna hang, I wanna be friends. It's really cool, right? And he says two things to Abram. Number one, fear not. Why would Abram be afraid? Context right? He just attacked five kings. He kicked a hornet's nest and he's probably worried a little bit about vengeance. What are they doing right now? Are they rallying their troops back together? Are they, they, there was no Google earth. They, he couldn't check in on them. He had no idea. Are they going to come get me? So God says this to Abram, I'm your shield. Don't be afraid. I'm your shield. Know this believer. You can do the right thing and it can still be dangerous. Abram did the right thing in chapter 14. And now he's afraid because he knows this is dangerous for me and my family now. You can do the right thing as a believer and it's dangerous. So yesterday as a staff, we had Von Lamas come share with us. He's a major dude in open door ministries where they are looking at and helping the persecuted Jews. It's been going on for 60 years. Um, if you haven't read God's Smuggler, read it. It's a fantastic book. And he, he was sharing with what is happening to our brothers and sisters in the faith who are doing the right thing and it's totally dangerous, costing some of them their life. They showed us a video of a young lady who it cost her her life because she did the right thing. You can do the right thing and it'll be dangerous. But God says, don't be afraid. I'm your shield. Ultimately, I'm your shield. And the next thing he says is, I'm your reward. Or not, I'm your reward. Your reward shall be very great. Why is there a reward stuck in there? Remember what he said to Sodom. The king of Sodom said, I'll give you all these goods. And what does Abram say? No, I don't want anything from you. So God is coming here saying, man, great choice, Abram. Don't worry, you didn't miss out on anything. You're gonna have an even better reward from me. I love that. I think it's like Moses. Hebrews 11 tells us about Moses, that Moses refused when he grew up, became an adult, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather the shame of being aligned with his people choosing that, choosing to suffer for Christ rather than to receive the reward of Pharaoh. And great is Moses' reward because he made that choice. You'll never outgive God. When we say no to the world, man, we get a reward that's out of this world. Jesus put it so plainly, he said, if you give a cup of cold water to somebody, some child, great will be your reward in heaven. So God is coming to Abram, who's a little nervous, wondering, man, did I, just, did I just miss the lottery? And I just kick a hornet's nest. And God's coming as his friend, comforting. Let's hang, let's talk. Look what Abram 
does, though, in response. Verse 2, but, I love, whenever you see a but, Abram, know there's a little bit of a problem. But, Abram said, oh, Lord God, what will you give me? (laughs) I love that. Big whoop. I'm going to have a big reward. All my stuff is going to this Eliezer dude, this hitchhiker we picked up in Haran. Really? Where's my kid? You promised me a kid. Man, I'm getting old. I'm 99. I'm getting old. I need children. Actually, it's 85. I'm 85. I need children. Right? The biological clock is ticking right now. My wife's eggs have a shelf life. She's 76. Not sure how much more time she has. Where's my son? What are you going to give me? Imagine this for a second. Imagine there's a friend, your best friends in high school or college or whatever it is. You and him, you move apart. You and her, you move apart. She, he's on the East Coast. You're over, you haven't seen or talked to them in 10 years. You decide for their birthday that you're going to fly to the East Coast, get a rental car, drive to her or his house and surprise them. And so you do all that. You, you do all that. You show up at the person's house on their birthday. Hey, man, it's me. It's been so long. Oh, I'm so gl- glad to see you. And the response is, oh. Yeah, um, I, I want to mention that, uh, remember about 10 years ago, I lent you five bucks. Where's it at? How would you feel about that? It's kind of what Abram does to God right here. Hey, hey, remember, you made this promise 10 years ago to me. Uh, I, I'm, I'm still waiting for it. It's, it's like, I almost can hear in my mind, in verse four, God just sighing. I kind of wanted to hang out. I kind of wanted to be friends. I didn't want to talk about this thing. You got to trust me on that. Now it's not the time yet. Really? We're going to talk about five bucks. Hmm. Do we do the same thing to God? He's been so good to us, saved us, redeemed us, made us part of his body, adopted us, promised that we'll become a new creation, living in a new city called New Jerusalem, made all these promises to us, given to us himself. And then we're like, yeah, that's great. But what about a boat? What about a new Volkswagen bus, right? Don't we do that to God? I think God sighs. I want friends. I don't want to be your sugar daddy. I want to be your friend. So Abram does this, but here's what's amazing to me. It's God's response. Look at verse five. And he brought him outside and he said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Who hasn't heard this promise to Abram? This is one of the big promises of the Bible that stretches really from here all the way through. You're going to have kids, not, not just one descendant, not just one line. If you could count all the stars, that's, that's how many kids you would have. In the sky that he would see, he would be able to see about between 1,200 and 1,500 stars. You know, not that he could count them. It's, hey, there's going to be a ton of kids it's going to be unbelievable. I'm going to do exceedingly abundantly above all you could ask or think. You want one kid? Try to count the stars. That's what it's going to be. That's what it's going to be like. So in my Bible, I have a note kind of Bible. I have right on this verse, I have written 
And in my notes, I have this. It's God bends low. And what I mean by that is this. Do you know people that are really good with other kids? Like adults that, man, they're just like the Pied Piper with kids. What do they do when they meet a new little kid? Do they loom over the top of them and like big booming voice, what's your name, son? No, what do they do? They get down, right? They bend down, they get on the same level as them. They, they usually raise their voice an octave or two. Hey, buddy. Hey, sweetie. What's your name, right? They bend low. They accommodate. They come down to the level of the child. That's what they do. I see God doing that right here. Hey, I'm here to hang out. What are you going to give me? Okay, fine. This is what I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you more descendants than you could name, than you could possibly count up there. Here's what God does. And I think you see this in his character from this point forward. God continually meets us, his people, where they are at to bring them to where he is at. So God meets people in their brokenness, in their failure, in their polygamy, in their garbage. And his whole goal is I'll bend to you in order to bring you up to where I'm at. And I love that about God's character. It's not him waiting for you and me to figure something out or get some stuff together. It's I'll bend down to your level, Matt. I'll meet you right where you are at. I'll give you the best example, which is a very hard one for me. It's what Jesus talks about when he talks about marriage. And so in Matthew 19, the people say, because Jesus just quotes Genesis 2. Hey, one man, one woman, one life, Matthew 19. So then they come back at him. Then, then why did Moses allow us to get divorced? And what's Jesus's answer? Because of hardness of heart. God knew there'd be hard-hearted people and so he accommodated the hard-heartedness, the sin of people, and allowed there to be divorce. It's God stooping low in people and their weakness and their failure in order to bring them to where he is at. The more I learn of God, the more I love him. The more accommodating he is, the more he wants to bring me along to him. And you see it right here, beginning with Abram. Huh. It makes me want to be like him as well. Are we accommodating to other people? Or do we constantly demand that they meet us where we're at? Because Paul would say this, it's 1 Corinthians chapter nine. He says, I became all things to all people that by all means, I might save some. To the Jew, I became a Jew. To the Greek, I became a Greek. To those under the law, I became under the law. To those that have no law, I became outside the law. Because my goal is to bring them to Jesus. I think the best witness is those that can stoop low and get down where people are at to bring them to where Jesus is at. Not demanding that they meet us somewhere, but meeting them where they're at, just like God does with Abram. So now God makes another promise. That was promise number one, you're gonna have kids. Promise number two is you're gonna have land. Sunday, we looked at verse six. He believes, let's count him as righteousness. Right on, he amens God. That's what the word believe there is. The Hebrew there is amen. He amens God. Promise number two. And he said to him, I am Yahweh who brought you out of 
Ur of the Chaldees, to give you this land to possess. But he said, oh Lord God, same term again, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He doubts here. We talked about that on Sunday. He said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. So Abram's standing in this land and God says, I'm going to give it to you. So Abram says, prove it. I can kind of understand that if somebody said, hey, Matt, I'm going to give you Grant's pass. I'd be like, well, prove it. How are you going to do that? So there's a little bit of that. I can get that. But he had just believed something even harder, kind of. You're 99 you're, or you're 86, 85. Your wife is 76. I'm going to give you kids. And now he has doubt. That's not terrible if you deal with it correctly. You walk out doubt right, it's good. And we talked about cutting covenant. And people I talked to after were like, that is weird. <laughs> Slice open an animal, meat in the middle of it, that's weird. I think it might be weird to us because as a culture, we are so far removed now from any kind of death. Do you know that? Like if we wanna get meat, what do we do? Is it get a gun or get a knife and go outside and like kill an animal? No, we go to Fred Meyer. It's nicely wrapped. It's got the little blood sponge underneath so we don't have to see anything grody. So we're removed from it. And, and I'm happy about that. So for like three years, I decided I was gonna grow free range organic chickens because I wanted healthy chicken for my family. So for three years I did. And so in June, it would be the time to I called it harvesting because butchering sounds so like barbaric. I'm like, I'm harvesting the chickens right now. And it was just brutal, man. It's, it was brutal. And so after three years, I decided, you know what? Walmart chicken is fine. <laughs> You're eating Walmart chicken. I'm not doing that anymore. So I get it. But I think they would look at us signing a piece of paper and being like, that's it doesn't cost you anything. doesn't take any time. There's no effort to it. That's a joke. And I think maybe the ancients better understood what a covenant was, the seriousness of giving your word and what that should mean than we do today. Because we know today there are enough loopholes that if you sign your name, you can get out of it somehow. You hire a good lawyer, you do whatever. You know, people in 2005 bought homes. They couldn't pay them anymore. They just, I'm giving it back to the bank. Well, okay, that's accepted. Or, hey, I took out a loan to start a business, couldn't do it, chapter seven, chapter 11, bankruptcy. Okay, I'm done. So we have a, a, a looser covenant culture today than they would have had 4,000 years ago. But I think as believers, we should have the same tight tolerance on our word that they would have had back then. Because Jesus says this to the believer, let your yes be and let your no be. Anything more is of, literally it's the evil one. Any kind of more stuff than that is actually from the pit. It's interesting to me. Let your yes be yes and let your no be no. 
Did you know this? That international trade was made possible because of Christians? I have this book called The Wisdom of Crowds, really great book, written, I don't know, 15 years ago. And it talks about the Quakers in the 1700s. There's a group of Quakers in Pennsylvania and there's a group of Quakers in London. And the Quakers in England were unbelievable in the 1700s. They owned half of all the ironworks of the British Empire. You're talking like Carnegie or something. On top of that, they had a total corner on the market on chocolate and biscuits. Lloyd's of London, Quaker company. Barclays, Quaker company. Like they were huge, right? 1700s, they did a lot more than oatmeal. Seems like that's all they do now. So they were massive. They were like, they had the, they dominated finance, right? They were the nice mafia of the 1700s. We regret to inform thee that we must break thy legs. Sorry. So they were powerful, super powerful. Well, the Quakers in London and the Quakers in, in Pennsylvania started trading internationally. And here's why they could trade, because they were honest. And they knew, the Quakers in London knew, if we send 500 shovels to the Quakers in Pennsylvania, they'll pay us for them. And the Quakers in Pennsylvania knew, we'll get the right quantity and we'll get the right quality from them. So that started international trade between these two groups. Well, pretty soon there's other groups in England that wanted to send stuff to America, but they didn't trust anyone except for the Quakers in Pennsylvania. So they said, well, can we send over whatever, you know, dump trucks, or can we send over something for you? Wagon wheels, yeah. And so it was through the Quakers that all international kind of trade began, and it was because they were so honest. They knew if we send them these shovels, they'll pay for them. If we pay for them, they'll send them. I think Christians should be that same way today, that people should be begging to do business with us because our yes is yes and our no is no, even when it hurts us. Psalm 15, four says this, if you give somebody your word, you keep it even to your own hurt. That's how important it is. That's really made international trade possible. So if you like your iPhone made in China, thank the Quakers and then thank Jesus because they made it possible, all right? So here, it's weird, but I think it's right. It really puts the gravity on what you're agreeing to. Your word really matters. So here's what happens. Verse 12. And the sun was going down. There's a long, long vision, is it not? Start in the morning. Oh, it started at night, excuse me, because he's able to look at the stars or maybe it's a vision, I'm not sure. And then it goes to all day maybe as they're talking or he's working, you know, whatever it, whatever it takes to butcher a cow. I've never butchered a cow. I'm sure it takes time and effort. So he's got all this butchering to do and now it's nighttime. So he's exhausted. A deep sleep fell on Abram and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then Yahweh said to Abram, Know for certainty that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You, sh you shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. 
So God has this promise to Abram. Hey, I'm going to give you the land. Wait a second. I'm going to give it to your descendants. Wait a second. I'm going to give it to descendants in 400 years. Right? That's what God says to Abram right here. In fact, in the 400 years between, your descendants are going to be enslaved and persecuted in another nation. Isn't that crazy? Why is God's chosen path for his chosen people to be persecution and enslavement in a foreign country? I'm sure Abraham's like, I've got a better plan. <laughs> I think maybe I could do better than that one, God. Because 400, are you kidding me? How old is America? We're 200 and, you know, 40 years. 400 years from now, Abram, you're going to get this land. That's insane when you think about it. Really? And in the process of the 400 years happening, enslavement, persecution, difficulty. Why would God do that? I think there's a bunch of reasons. I'll give you three. And maybe you've asked yourself that same question. Lord, why has the chosen path in my life been persecution and difficulty and hardship? I don't understand it. Well, maybe these three reasons will help you. Number one, hard is not bad. Do you know that? Hard is not bad. I tell that to my kids. Life will be hard, but that doesn't mean it's bad. Hard's not bad. Sometimes hard can lead to really, really good stuff. Hard sometimes does this. Have, you guys know Pavlov's dogs, right? The puppies that are kept super, that they never bit other, another puppy, never got bit by another puppy. They, they never experienced pain. And when they got a little bit older, he let them out and they didn't know what pain was, and they would sniff a candle until it burned their nose off because they never developed correctly. They missed something, right? They, they need that chewing on each other. They need the little yelps. They, they need that. They missed that. I think the same thing can happen to humans. So I think it was six years ago, five years ago, somebody sent me this link to an MTV show called My Sweet 16. Has anybody seen that show? You guys are so smart. You're not going to hell. You're going to heaven. All right, so I, I watched this episode and it was of this girl named Audrey in Florida. And for her super sweet 16th birthday, her parents spent $300,000. Yeah, it's, it's unbelievable. I mean, crazy. So th they're getting all ready for this birthday. It's a day before the birthday. And so Audrey is there with her friends, like 10 friends, and they're checking out this incredible ballroom that's gonna be this, you know, it's just gonna be over the top. And her mom decides, I'm gonna surprise her a day early with her new car, which was a $50,000 Lexus. Like 300 grand was not enough. Let's just throw another 50 on top for good measure. So she brings the car, parks it out in front of this place, puts a big bow on it, then calls Audrey on her cell phone. So Audrey comes out with her entourage, sees the car and screams, not for joy or delight, but because she is so angry at her mom. She starts cussing at her mom saying, you have ruined my life. You've ruined my birthday. How could you have given me this one day early? My thought was, you can ruin my life any way you want like that. So if you want to do that to me, I will receive that. I will serve you in that way. And the next thing I expected for her was to grab the belt off one of those boys because they weren't using it. Their pants were around their knees and just spank that girl. <laughs> but that did not happen. Instead, the mom had all this self-loathing, like, oh, I blew it. How could I have done that to my daughter? I'm like, oh my goodness. Now what's happened there? It's a Pavlov dog, right? It's been so easy and made so, it's the helicopter parent just, or, or uh, what's the, um, I just lost it. 
in the Olympics where they throw that funny thing and they sweep in front of it? Curling, a curling parent, where it's like, I'm gonna sweep every difficulty out of the way of my kid. Men, look out for that. Hard is not bad. James 1 would put it like this. Count it all joy when you go through hardship because it is a trying of your faith that produces patience and let patience have her perfect work that you might be complete, entire, lacking nothing. God knows, I don't want you to be a Pavlov dog. You're missing something, Matt. You're not gonna grow up right. So I'm gonna allow this thing in your life because it's going to train you and complete you. So hard, number one, why does God do this? Why does God allow us to do, go through this? Number one, because hard is not bad. Number two, because God's character is long-suffering. So God here says, I'm giving them 400 years until their wickedness is completely full. I'm giving them chance after chance after chance after chance to repent and change their wicked, wicked ways. Before you guys come in, before there is the, the, the cleansing of the land, I'm gonna give them every opportunity to repent. We can ask the same thing today. God, why don't you judge Syria? God, why don't you judge ISIS? Look at what they did on Monday. God, what are you waiting for? And the same answer I think God would give, I'm long suffering. Second Peter three, verse nine. I am not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. And I'll give adequate time for them to have every chance possible. And here's what we know from chapter 14. In the Amorite center of the Amorite area is a city called Salem. And there in Salem is this high priest who's called Melchizedek, who's some kind of, minimally he's the high priest of God. So he is this light in the middle of this wicked area, shining out, sharing who God is as his high priest. Possibly, actually, God the Son. Um, there's some that would argue that. It, minimally, he's the high priest of God who is now sharing the good news of God and coming to him. God's at work in ways we cannot imagine. I have a professor that had lots of ties to the Islamic world. And he said, there is a movement right now in Islam. I can't tell you about it because it's that kind of dangerous thing. In Iran and other places, it's unbelievable. The visions that they're having, the, the repentance, there's a movement right now. And, he, and part of it, when I was in Israel, was this. The, the, there's cultural Muslims that they're just, hey, I was born in this, this is what I am. But now what they see with ISIS and what is happening in Syria, there's like, I don't want anything to do with that. Is there a better option? And so there's an openness right now. ISIS is actually causing there to be a real divide in what Islam is all about. It's causing those that are just cultural Muslims to begin to say, wait a second, maybe, just maybe, I don't want anything to do with this thing. Is there something better? And it gets an opening for people to be and share about the love of Jesus, right? So God is long suffering sometimes, allowing things that we don't know what's going on. God does not give the whole plan to Abram, right? God does not give the whole plan to you and me. You know why? Because we'll want to suggest a better plan for him. God, you know, hold on a second. I got a better plan. So God says, this is the way it is. And trust me, trust me. So he's long suffering. Number three, I see this as an example of 
judo theology. If you don't know what judo theology is, it's what I believe God does with evil. That God, Genesis 50, 20, what you meant for evil, God has turned for good. And I think you see that in event after event after event in the Bible, right? The cross, what was meant for the ultimate evil, the killing of God, turns out to be Easter, resurrection, the new beginning, new creation, reconciliation of the world. So that's what God does. And he's gonna do it right here. If you know what judo is, Judo is a martial art that you use the momentum of your opponent against him. So let's say Josh, our sound guy. He just finally is tired of me, tired of me, ruining the equipment, whatever. And just in the middle of the sermon, he bum rushes me, jumps up on the stage. Judo would be, as he's rushing me, I just use his momentum to easily throw him to the ground and crush him, right? That's judo. Well, the same thing, I think God does. God uses the momentum of evil against itself. And he's gonna do it right here because look at verse 14. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. They're gonna come into the promised land loaded. They're gonna have all this stuff, all, these, all this wealth. I'm gonna turn it for good in their life. So here's a saying that I love. It's this, when it comes to judo theology, God works the night shift. When it's darkest, when it seems like there's no way out, when you can't see even a flicker of light, that's very often the time that God is working in amazing, incredible ways. God works the night shift. Use that and read the Bible with that idea. How often does it look so dark and so dim, like there's no possibility of anything good coming from this? And God grabs a hold of it and wrenches out of evil good because he works a night shift, judo theology. So it finishes this way. Verse 17, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between those pieces. On that day, Yahweh made a covenant with Abram saying to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt, doubtful it's the Nile, it's probably the Wadi al-Aresh, which is called that, the Nile is always called the Hebrew word for the Nile, to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites. I could make a joke about the Cadmonites, I won't. The Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. So God now, on Sunday we looked at this. The normal was you met in the middle, each person doing their, you know, journey to the middle, you meet in the middle of the cow and you're both saying, if I don't keep my side, let me be made like this cow. Let me be ripped apart. What does Abram do in this covenant? He sleeps. God goes all the way through it. I'm going to keep this covenant. It will not be based on you, Abram, or your kids or your descendants. None of them. It will be based on me. And if I fail, let me be ripped apart. And Abram, if you fail... Let me be ripped apart. And that's exactly what happens 2,000 years later when God the Son goes up on Calvary, all right? This is the only way 
Reconciliation works. People that think they can do it on their own, meet God in the middle, they always fail. So I have people that say this to me, Matt, I just live by the Sermon on the Mount. I love that one because it's just like a softball. I'm like, really? Okay, so the Sermon on the Mount says that your righteousness needs to exceed that of the Pharisees. The Pharisees in their day were like the Mother Teresa's and the Billy Graham's. Are you exceeding the rightness of Mother Teresa and Billy Graham? So are you holding lepers as they die? No, I didn't think so. It also says there to love your enemies. Do you have anyone that you do not love? If you think back about your whole life, is there anyone you're like, I don't like that person because you just failed then. And that doesn't get you. The end of just chapter five says, be ye perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. Anyone struggle with that? Because if you say no at that point, then you have the sin of pride, which is Satan's sin. So you just failed. You can't live by it. The only way you and I will ever be reconciled to our Father is if we trust the completed work of Calvary. It's the only way. Every other religion fails. It's that simple. So we talked about that on Sunday. Let me look at this metaphor really quick. I believe this is the first metaphor you see about God. So there's been no like um, visual, if you would, of God until now. So it says, when the sun came down, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. And on that day, Yahweh made this covenant. We would say today, a smoking oven, which is what happens when I cook, which means I'm godly, I guess. The idea here is this fire, this smoke, this uh. Well, from this point forward, the metaphor of fire is used very frequently of God, God's space, I guess. I I don't know how else to put it. God's space overlapping our space, right? So the idea of heaven as this faraway place, at some point I'll do a biblical theology on that. It, It doesn't exist. There's no idea like that. Jesus never says when you die, you go to heaven. Do you know that? He says, there's gonna be the reconciliation of all things. A whole different story. But anyways, um, when you see God's space, which is a much better way to talk about where God is at, when you see God's space overlap earth, a lot of times there's fire. Right here, there's fire. All right? Next book called Exodus. Moses is out keeping the sheep. What does he see? He sees this bush that's on fire, but not being consumed. He's like, I should check that out. That's really interesting. And what is it? It's God's space overlapping human space and a bush erupts in flame. Exodus 40, end of that book. They build this tabernacle. The tabernacle is the place where the Holy of Holies is at, where the Ark of the Covenant is at, where God's visible, tangible presence is felt, is seen, how is it seen? Seen as fire. In fact, that pillar of fire from that point on, at night guides the Israelites. He's seen as a pillar of fire. Solomon builds his temple. A temple is really where they're, they're saying, this is a place where God's space 
overlaps our space. That's the temple. You go there to meet God. So what happens when Solomon dedicates the temple in 1 Chronicles chapter 7? He prays, verse 1 and verse 2, it says that God came, his glory came, and it was like fire, and none of the priests could stand anymore. Fire, right? So there's this wager between Elijah and Baal. And what is the wager? Send down fire. Prove that your God, why? By sending down fire, that visible, tangible God space overlapping human space. And that's what happens. I go on and on and on. Go Isaiah, et cetera, et cetera. What is taken off the coal or off the altar? It's fire, all right? So very frequently, the metaphor for God is fire. Now, why would that be? I think because fire is necessary, right? It lights, it warms, you cook with it. It's a really good thing. But fire is also very dangerous. You do not play with fire. So you get both of those with God. Don't, you don't play with God. Read Amos chapter five. Don't play me for a fool. Don't do that to me. So then you come into the New Testament. Jesus dies, buried, resurrected, tells his disciples, hey, go to the upper room, wait for me. Something's gonna happen to you. So Acts chapter two, what happens to them? Right, we say tongues of fire. That's just a way of interpreting that word. It's really tiny fires. Tiny fires were lit up on the top of all the believers. Why is that? Well, they would know, whew, we know that like fire is the metaphor for God. And what was being said there is this, you are now the overlap of heaven and earth. You are now where God's space has invaded human space. And so Paul would say, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You are the place now that God resides. His fire now resides in you. You are now his temple. You're the place. You're the example. You're the light of the world. You provide warmth to this world. You show what God looks like by the way that you live. Therefore, glorify God in your body. It's brilliant. Are we good little fires? I hope I am. I hope people more and more see Jesus through my life because that's ultimately what they're supposed to see. We're supposed to be that burning bush, if you would. We're supposed to be in that flaming, that smoking oven. We're supposed to be that fire from heaven. That's what we're supposed to be. Showing out, to the nations, to the world, what it looks like to be those that become the temple of God. And so Jesus, I pray for each one of us this day, we have a high, huge, holy calling on our life. That your fire, your spirit would have taken up residencies in these clay vessels. And we know that we're weak and we know that we're frail but we also know that in our weakness, you can be strong. And so I pray for each one of us as we go from this place this day. I pray for those that have been walking in hardship and in difficulty. I pray that the story of the Israelites would remind us that hard is not bad, that you are long suffering and that you are the one that can wring good from evil. You're the only one that can do that. And that we would trust you in the midst of difficulty, knowing that you work the night shift. 
I pray for those in here whose fire has dimmed. I pray that we would be faithful to continue to stack the kindling of Scripture, of prayer, of fellowship around our soul, and that you would once again ignite that fire. I pray that we would go from this place as able ambassadors of the new kingdom because of the power of your spirit, not by might, not by strength, but by your spirit. So would you fill and empower us as we go out to be lights, to be fire, to be that overlap, to be those temples, to glorify you in these bodies. And I pray that in your name, amen. Amen. God bless you guys.